Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, the entitlement crisis deepens, the Supreme Court hears arguments on adding a question on citizenship status to the U.S. Census, and ideological sides battle over what to call their issues. The debt crisis is coming, no matter what President Donald Trump and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tell themselves. Trustees of Social Security warned this week that Social Security tax receipts will not cover benefits paid starting in 2020. The trustees also warned that the Social Security Trust Fund, itself principally IOUs payable to Social Security by other parts of the government, will be depleted by 2035. Medicare, the old-age health care entitlement, is even worse off. Its hospital coverage benefit, Medicare Part A, will become insolvent in 2026. When Social Security becomes insolvent, benefits are scheduled to be cut immediately and automatically by an estimated 20%. While this is happening, the Trump administration has promised not to touch Social Security, and congressional Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have promised to expand Medicare to all Americans as a path to a government-controlled, Veterans Administration-style, single-payer system. The far left has the support of a number of interest groups, including labor unions like National Nurses United, political committees like Justice Democrats, and policy organizations like Demos and Ralph Nader's Public Citizen in pushing this massive expansion of government control and government expenditure. On the other side, there are a handful of organizations warning about the coming crisis. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, a centrist, balanced budgets organization funded by, among others, the conservative Bradley Foundation and the liberal Hewlett Foundation, warned that, quote, we should be focused on saving Social Security and Medicare before we start promising to expand these programs. Brian Riedel of the conservative Manhattan Institute warned that the shortfall in dedicated tax revenues to fund the entitlements will draw more general tax revenue into shoring up the programs, rather than covering the current government activities. That said, conservative organizations have stepped back from advocating for sensible budgetary policy in general, to say nothing of entitlement reform, following the lead of prominent Republican politicians. And that's all without considering the left-of-center seniors' lobby, AARP, one of the most well-funded and powerful issue advocacy organizations in Washington. AARP has opposed efforts to reform Social Security to make it solvent in the past. Meanwhile, time is running out to develop policies and programs to head off the coming debt crisis and avoid substantial increases in the payroll taxes paid by every working American. The Supreme Court heard arguments this week over whether the Census Bureau could add a question to the main short-form census survey asking respondents if they are U.S. citizens, in a case titled Department of Commerce v. New York. The Trump administration is seeking the information, officially to assist enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, but unofficially, in the words of the most senior administration official, because, quote, the American people deserve to know who is in this country. The state of New York, which fears that non-citizens will not respond to a census asking citizenship status, potentially costing New York State congressional representation and federal funds, and the immigration expansionist advocacy group New York Immigration Coalition, among other entities, sued. And the lower courts blocked the addition of the question. The Trump administration then asked for expedited consideration at the Supreme Court, because the census forms have to be finalized in short order. So where does the law stand? And here I am deferring principally to the expertise of National Review's David French, who, unlike me, is an actual lawyer. The Constitution requires a census to be taken every 10 years for the purposes of apportioning congressional seats among the several states. By extension, this also apportions the electoral votes, which are calculated by adding the House seats to the Senate seats. The census is ordered to count, quote, the total resident population of the 50 states, close quote, for determining representation. Congress gave the Secretary of Commerce, whose department oversees the Census Bureau, 
authority to take a census on the appointed census day, quote, in such form and content as he may determine. So, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross ordered a citizenship question be added. The challengers, New York State and the liberal expansionist immigration advocacy groups, argued that Ross did so for nefarious motives and arbitrarily, in violation of the Federal Administrative Procedure Act, which governs how regulations are promulgated. But the grant of power over the census was effectively plenary. So, in French's view, Ross presumptively has the power to do it if his action isn't, quote, arbitrary and capricious. For whatever it's worth, historically, the Census Bureau has asked about people's citizenship status. From 1820 to 1950, they did so on the main universal response form, and from 1960 to 2000, on the long form given to a select random sample of respondents. According to the court watchers, the originalist, more conservative-leaning justices seemed more favorable towards the Commerce Department's arguments than the challengers, making it more likely the question will appear on census forms in 2020. And in our final item this week, we consider an important and often overlooked fact of political and policy life. Issue framing, or in the words of Capital Research Center contributor Tim Daughtry, the battle for America's unconscious mind. Very briefly, and I encourage you to go to capitalresearch.org and read Daughtry's series of articles for yourself, activists on the political and policy left have been relatively successful in priming the general public's unconscious approach to politics and policy by sophisticated and selective uses of language. To use just one example, by defining liberal or socialist policies like government-controlled health care as health care reform, left-wing advocates steal the positive associations people have with reform as an amorphous concept for their far more controversial actions. Using control of the culture, especially the entertainment industry, the major universities, and the metropolitan elite press, liberal advocates subtly change the very playing field of politics in a manner that benefits them. However, it's not entirely clear how far the left can go using these subtle rhetorical games. Megan McArdle of the Washington Post noted that the far left, perhaps most notably far-left think tank Demos's Sean McElwee, believe that they can, quote, shift the Overton window by making extremist and very radical proposals, and therefore win ultimate policies more like what they actually want than the status quo. But it's a claim that's mostly unsubstantiated. The Overton Window, named for Joseph Overton, a late scholar at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, is a metaphor for the set of politically possible policies a government could choose to enact. But McArdle argues that all the subtle rhetorical games are ultimately constrained by reality in the long run. Specifically, voters' considerations of the costs in time and taxes and benefits in cash, public goods provided, or other support to themselves and society from a policy. For critics of left-of-center policy, McArdle's observation provides a path out of Daughtry's conundrum. Emphasize the cost and disruptions that make up the reality behind the strategic language. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week. <laughs>